Lord, we um, come before you, and we've, we've been graced enough to honor you, Lord God, through um, so many facets. And Lord God, we get right now to honor you through hearing and the commitment to your word. So as we pray every time we gather, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord God, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Let's give God a big up one more time for him appointing for us more leaders. Amen. We're excited about God's work among us. Um, we also are in that point, you know, we are an inner city church plant here, and, um, and, or a church startup, as some would call it, and we are about 65% um, to, full, um, f- to fully taking care of what God has called us to financially from the inside. So through your gifts... Um, it usually takes 20, it usually takes really forever for an inner city church plan to actually get to full support. So we're 65% there now. We're supported 35% from the outside. And so um, some of that external has dropped because of over time that usually dissipates. So the first f- four to five years of a church plant, usually you need first t- what we call first tier partners. Then in the, in the, in the second four to five years, um, you, want, you want kind of like second-tier partners so that when the first partners drop off financially, you can get new partners. Well, God has been gracing us to go out, and one of my roles here as lead pastor, visionary leader, is um, to raise those funds. And so God has been gracious um, through one of our external partners, the Village Church, um, has jumped on for a part of the second tier. And um, they have actually, uh, the elders there met last Monday, and um, they're wiring a check this week for $50,000. Amen. Amen. And, and, a, and, a, and they have designated, this is crazy, right? They've designated a portion of it. They said they, we want a portion of it to be used for you all to have air conditioning in the summertime. So this summer, Amen. Somebody should shout. I should, I should have seen somebody running across the back. If I was back home in the South and, and if I was in a country church, if I was in there, I'd have... <laughs> yeah, man. We, so we praise God for his provision. So now some of y'all are still in worship. It's like, I remember God. See, some of y'all ain't never been in here washed down in sweat during the summertime. With them bricks, this is a sauna, you know what I'm saying? Um, um, 38 inches of concrete between each floor. So, so we were, we've been, we just been, I don't know if y'all can recognize God's grace on us. Um, but God has been very, very, very good to us. Uh, there have been external partners over this time. They will have had given Epiphany Fellowship over a million dollars over time. Amen. Now, but what that means, though, that don't mean you clap with your, your pocketbook closed. Yeah, the, the amens got real quiet on that part. Yeah, but we need, but what we need, you know, we need us to continue as we grow up and co- go from infancy as a church to maturity that God would grace us financially to pay our own bills, amen, and to give money to mission. And so that, that's, that's what we're here for. We give, of your giving, internal giving, we give 20% of that away, 20%. And so um, a part of that is Epiphany Camden, which I know you know next month, Keep that lifted. Um, this is Pastor Doug's last month with us. So, uh-oh, uh-oh. Don't cry, Doc. He about to, 
you know, he's a crybaby worse than me. We'll do that later when we do the commissioning service. So just look over there somewhere. But anyway, um, but yeah, so, so we're commission- we're, he's going to be going out with the team next month. And so, but part of that is, is, is we give from you guys giving to that because we don't say we don't want to be the full support before we start doing that. If you don't begin doing that first, you'll never do it. Amen. 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 So that, that's an exciting piece for us. Let's dive into Ephesians. Also, we didn't announce, but baby Burke is here for the first time this Sunday. Amen. Amen. This is the second time? The second time. What a second. Did we announce it the first time? We didn't. Well, amen, baby Burke. Can't wait till the, che- the cheeks will ripen in about six months for the face. For the face. What'd you say, baby? Oh, Miss Christie's birthday. Miss Christie is Miss Christie's birthday. Amen. Sister Christie. She's, she's like, what's well, she like? Wax? Yeah, amen. Amen. Huh? 54. Amen. 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 That's glorious. Glorious. Glorious, glorious, glorious. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're we're back in our current series. Um, um, We're going line by line, precept upon precept through Ephesians. Um, Who am I? The identity of the believer is the title of this series. And and we're on this section where um, we're beginning to see the fruits of chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 22, actually fleshed out in chapter 4. Paul was kind of setting up for this um, in the Ephesian church because one of the things that he wanted to make sure of is that there was unity in the church. And one, one of the things that he, that he told them before he left in Acts chapter 20 is he told them in tears, crying to them. He says, he says and I'm about to leave, I'm about to dip, but he says, after I leave, some from among you, from your own ranks, will come up not sparing the flock and causing division and teaching things that ought not be taught. And he said, and he, and he charged the elders, he says, but you, you stand God and protect the flock of God of which I didn't cease day or night admonishing you in tears the entire counsel of God. And so we see him following up the necessity for that teaching. I mean, you realize how beastly theologically the Ephesians were when you look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where he begins, uh, uh, what Jesus says, y'all are theologically weighted, but I wanted you all to have intimacy with me also that flows from that theology. And so here in this passage, we dive in, and he's, and, and, and he's, and he's on the subject of unity. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. We're going to get through these, and I'm going to be out your way. It says verse 4, he says, he says, there is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I I, want to talk about for a little while victorious unity. Say victorious unity. Yeah, 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 victorious unity. Unity is necessary because 
we have issues. The church guy, church, if, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna walk with Jesus Christ and you're gonna commit to a local church, you're gonna recognize that all of us are a mess. Now, the issue though is, is that God has graced us not to remain in our mess. So what he has done in Christ is he's done something fantastic. He has secured through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross unity of those who were once lost. And so now we see here in this passage where Paul begins um, kind of working through and talking through this unity. Now he does something that he doesn't usually do. He only does it maybe in Titus and a few other books. He gives duty before he gives the doctrine. Now last time we saw he gave duty, he gave uh, orthopraxy in verses 1 through 3. He'll go back to orthopraxy in verses 11 through the rest of the chapter. It's going to get real gully in a minute. But in verses 4 through 10, he zooms back in on the theological unification points that causes the church to be one. In other words, what positionally, what functionally empowers the church to be one? In other words, we're not trying to walk in unity. That's the wrong way of looking at it. We, in, other, in other words, we, we don't try to be unified to be in right relationship with God. Because we're in right relationship with God through Christ, we walk in unity. So it flows from being uh, empowered by that unity. Now, what he does here is something interesting, which brings us to our first and only point. Jesus' position secured our unity. <coughs> Jesus' position secured or secures both our unity. Now, this, some scholars believe that this is creedal here. Um, creedal meaning it was an announcement of the church. Creeds were written by the church to aid and help for historic Christian doctrines to be passed down from generation to generation by the church so that we're unified in what makes the church the church and what connects us together. And when, when, I, when I was growing up in the church, even though I wasn't a Christian, um, I was baptized twice, but I was just a wet sinner. But what, 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 what was interesting, what's interesting was, was this. Some of y'all catch that on the way home. When you, and listen, when you, wet, when you make dirt wet, it just turns into mud, baby. That's all. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, in, in, anyway, creed, creed, we, we used to stand up every Sunday, and we would do several creeds. We, we would do, we would do um, the, uh, the, the, the Apostles' Creed. And, and, and we would say that, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Amen. Then we sing a song. Glory be to the Father and to the... I, I love that song. Because listen, listen, I just feel God right now when I listen on that thing. But it's good doctrine. You know, I was listening to the Soul Children of Chicago the other day. Y'all know nothing about that. And, 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 they, and, and, and Kim Rutherford was singing, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And, 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 and we pray that our unity will someday be restored. Then it says, but they'll know we are Christians by love. Listen, that, that's, those are creedal speeches for us to announce in doctrine, to connect intellect with emotion, and then make sure that we walk in it volitionally. So this may be a credo deal that the early church used to use, one God, one faith, one baptism. And he starts, interestingly enough, with one body. Say one body. 
Now, when he talks about us being one body, as that which Christ has secured, he's talking about being rooted and united as one people of God. There are two, there are three tenses, if you will, of the church. There's the universal church, there's the invisible church, there's the visible church, and of course, fourthly, but not leastly, there's the local church. Now, when we talk about one body, we are universally one body. Now, you may call yourself a Calvinist. Another Christian may call themselves an Arminian. Some person may call themselves Wesleyan. Some people may say that, uh, you know, I'm CME, I'm AME, I'm Kojic, I'm National Baptist, I'm Progressive Baptist, you know, I'm Cool Baptist, I'm Water Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, PCA, RCA, USA, uh, GED, all of this stuff, right? I mean, just there's all types of titles. Now, but, but, but there is a commonality no matter the nuances in our doctrinal stances that we're one body. And so, and, so, and, so, and so that means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ because we not only agree the right doctrine, we've been born into the right doctrine. That is, grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, makes us one body. They're not multiple bodies. There's only one body, many parts. So the body, the church, is as a community, not merely in position, but form, function, and practice. It's in form function and practice form means what 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 does our incarnation look like when we flesh out God's truth where we live and dwell while being faithful to the function what do I mean by function function are the nooks and crannies and the nutrition and the vitamins that makes a church a church but then there's practice we should have unity in our practice okay so so the, so that that's that, that that's what that's what functionally lays, lays this out now Paul through the rest of the chapter going to talk to us what it looks like for the church to walk in unity as a body he's going to talk later about grieving the holy spirit putting off old stuff putting on new stuff he's going to talk about a whole bunch of what it functionally looks like unity but here he's he's fleshing it out i like the way ferguson said it he says individuals <coughs> are brought into the church which is the body of christ that is the fellowship of those who, because united to Christ by grace and faith, are bonded inextricably together in one bundle of life. They belong to one another because they belong to Christ. <laughs> so we belong to one another. So we got a universal church, but we got the local church. So therefore, <laughs> there is a must in a non-committed culture to be committed to a local community of believers. You can't have oneness doing internet church. You can't, you can't have oneness with Christians watching TBN all day on some Word Network and Daystar, all that, whatever. But I'm just saying, you have to be in a local body in order to function in that oneness, right? So, 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 so there has to be, I do Jesus by myself. You know, I'm sick of folk. Well, you don't like you either because you're part of the body. So if you hate the church, you hate you too. So we're one body, one body. Then he goes and he says, one spirit, say one spirit. Now in talking about us being united, again, the context is unity. This is not just, <laughs> this is not just some detached creedal statements, but, but, but it has viability with it in relation to unity. Now when he talks about one spirit, he's talking about being root, rooted in being united by one common spirit. Now how did we get united with this common spirit? I'm glad you asked. What happens is, based on John chapter 16, <clears throat> um, the Holy Spirit does a work 
in the life of the lost. And he does that in John 16, and he does it as well as in, uh, in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. So what he does is, we don't know, the Bible says in John 3, when Jesus saw the Nicodemus, no one knows how the Spirit comes. But just like the wind comes and goes as it pleases, that's how the Spirit comes and goes as he pleases. And what the Holy Spirit does without the help of human beings is he regenerates them. Um, because you can't believe the gospel without the Holy Spirit's help. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can, accept, can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit of God. That's the Word of God. So therefore, the only way for that to happen, because based on Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we're too lost to see the gospel because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2, 3 and 4 say that in our lost state, the enemy of this world has blinded our eyes so that we may not see the gospel of peace. So therefore, the Holy Spirit has to change us to see it. See, if he removed the blinders, it says your mind was blinded. Not your eyes, your mind, so your understanding is darkened. So you have to be given the capacity for your mind to understand it in order for you to believe it. Now, Romans 12, verse 3 says, he's given to each a measure of faith. So he not only gives you the, the, gives you the ability to believe by regenerating you and renewing you by watching you, but guess what he does? He gives you faith, the ability to believe, presents the gospel to you, you amen what he amens through you, then you become a Christian, then Jesus moves out of the way and you come into something called the sheepfold, the body of Christ, based on John 10. And so what happens now is now you're part of this one body and you're baptized based on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, not after salvation, but at salvation. And you're placed into the body of Christ, not by human work, but by the hand of the living God. <laughs> so, 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 so what we're talking about when we say one spirit, this one spirit activates us. He, he not it, not the what, not some smoke or some type of mist, but he's sovereign and he's God and he's ruler and, 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 he, and he disciplines the church. As Ananias and Sapphira. Peter didn't say he lied to Jesus. He didn't say he lied to the Father. He said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. How did you lie? Acting like the Spirit was giving you the grace to give something and you didn't give it. And you lied that the Holy Spirit told you, and he didn't tell you. It was you shouting in the service wanting to give. But then when you got and saw how much money you was going to make, then he was like, nah, I'm not going to give that. Holy Spirit said, good night. So he's God. You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. God, the Holy Spirit. You say the Spirit of God ain't the God in the Bible. That's why the Ephesians is like a trinity book. Not try, not just tr Trinity book, but I try. Everywhere in this book, you'll see the Godhead working together. In chapter one, verses one through fourteen, you see them work together for our salvation. In chapter seventeen, you see them work uh, together for our sanctification. In chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two, he breaks down what divides us. In this chapter right here, well, actually, chapter two of the, the latter part of that chapter, before the doxology, he works on us to help our hearts to be renewed, to have intimacy with God, and then. In in this section, the Godhead works together to unify us. So the Spirit of God is the leader and guider of a community who listens to him together. So he leads all of us individually. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit, when he's truly leading God's people, never lead them away from the same thing. 
When, when, when we're all being properly spirit-led, he always leads us in unity, not division. Always. Always. So, so, so therefore, God's work in us and the Holy Spirit's work in us is a grace for our oneness. Now he goes from one body. I can, we can stay on that all day. One, one body. Then he goes to one spirit. Then he says, just as you were called to the one hope. Say one hope. Yeah, this is good stuff right here. You know, hope. Hope is one of the three pillars of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Those are three pillars of the Christian faith. A hope is one of those pillars. I like the way Horner describes what hope is exegetically. He says, hope is the eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. I like that. The eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. In other words, in other words, the, the, the people of God should be unified in their expectations. Okay, let me see if I can make it plain, because y'all looking at me funny. Um, now, <clears throat> there's ultimate hope, and there's current hope. Now, the ultimate hope is that Jesus Christ is going to come back and put all things under his feet, and then hand the kingdom back over to God the Father. Now, what unifies every Christian is not whether or not there's going to be seven years of tribulation and whether you're arm mill, dispensational, who cares? Do you agree that Jesus is coming back? And why do you read Revelation chapter, Revelation and talking about all them different views when the chapter one says what Revelation is about? It says the revelation of Jesus. That's what Revelation, if you don't get Jesus out of Revelation, if you don't get Jesus out of it and all you get is some views, you miss Revelation because the whole Bible's about Jesus and now it climaxes in our divine hope about Jesus. So if you come away with anything but Jesus, but you come away with a view or some helicopters and and Nostradamus, if you come away with that, you've missed it, and you're focusing on a view rather than the one that you're supposed to have view of. It's the revelation of Jesus. And so our divine hope is in him. So every Christian, based on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, it says, keeping our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. So what we're supposed to do, baby, is we're supposed to zoom in on Jesus. Now, if we stop looking at each other's issues, if we stop looking at the building, if we stop looking at this and that and the other, if we would just look at Jesus, our hope, then what happens is he aligns us up in time, even though we're not in eternity yet. So we're talking about expectation. That means that, means that we have the same vision. Christians should have the same vision. The, the vision of what God has called for all things to be culminated in Jesus. Now, <clears throat> what's beautiful about that is that that makes everything else pale in comparison. Because some of the things that I worry about and I get frustrated about, if I just look at the massiveness of the hope that Christ brings, when I come back down to planet Earth and start looking around, this don't really matter as much. That's why Paul can say, I consider the sufferings of this present life not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed where? In us. So that means I can go through hell and high water, and I can go through difficulty, but the eschatological expectation of everything being consummated and revealed in Jesus changes how I deal with now. And so that's, and then when that happens, we keep short accounts with each other. Because we said, this, this is a, let's work towards the hope. That's what, that's what I, when I say you have an argument with a Christian, ask them, say, 
how is this working towards the hope that's to be revealed in us? That's going to change the conversation. Because you know what? I, I don't like you. And you're like, how's that working towards the hope? I don't see hope moving. I mean, hope ain't moving. You know what I'm saying? So how does that work towards that divine reality of unity, right? And so then he goes forward and he points us to the call that belongs to us. Of course, that call is salvation or that effectual call to that salvation. Then he goes into kind of this triune cluster here that, 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 that should be a part of us. I wish I could just do a sermon on the first one. I almost just stopped on the first one, but I got, I, I, you know, I will be in 2050 if, if, if I don't stop and go. But one Lord, stop right there. Kurios is the word there. That's interesting because this was, this is not as radical for us as it was for them. But in their time, to call Yahshua, Kurios, to call Messiah, both Yahweh and Kurios, would have meant massive implications for the Jew and massive for the Greek. Now, in Greco-Roman culture, in Greco-Roman culture, interesting, Greco-Roman culture, they would have viewed this interestingly because they would have said, one Lord. They'd have been like, hold up, one Lord? I thought Caesar was Lord. And they would have been like, no, there's only one Lord. Guess what that would have been? Treason. And so he frees them to commit treason against the government by not working against the government, but helping the government. By letting the governing authorities know that there's only one Lord. And that means that the Lordship of Christ is a major motivation for the unity of the church. Amen. That means, now, now this, is, well, this is key that you understand. You don't make Jesus Lord. You don't make Jesus. You need to make Jesus Lord. I've made Jesus Lord of my life. You ain't make him nothing. He's already Lord. You just respond to the fact that he is Lord. That's your, the Bible never tells. Show me a verse that says, make Jesus your Lord. It just tells you set him aside as Lord in your heart, 1 Peter 3.15. <laughs> so there's one Lord. So, so the Lordship of Christ motivates us. Now, the beauty of this is it has future beauty and present beauty. Everything does. Because the Bible says in Philippians chapter 9 through 11, that said, at the name of Yahshua, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God the Father. So God likes it that he's taken Jesus, the name of Jesus, and took the name of Yahweh really out the way, took everything that God is and placed it in the name of Jesus so that it's a multivitamin pill for whatever is needed for redemption. So he's made his name higher than every name, even the name of the Godhead, for a purpose for him to be preeminent in salvation and working and unifying and challenging the lives of God's people. And so his lordship, his lordship is massive in salvific history. And so now we see that he's one Lord, but then we see one faith. Now, faith here is not the body of teachings type deal that we, talk, that we usually talk about um, when we talk about faith. He's talking about the faith that all of the church has in the one Lord. So this one Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one we have put, placed our faith in, and we're unified by the fact that the object of our faith is Jesus. 
And so that unifies us as a central point of unity. So the lordship of Christ should rule everything in our life. And then he goes and he says one Lord, then he says one faith, then he says one baptism. Now, I know you've, you probably said one baptism. Now, this church sprinkles, this church pours, this church tells you, say, thank you, Jesus, with your hands up. This church, I mean, why? They said the baptism of the Spirit, they said baptism of war. Which one? There's only really one baptism. Only one. All the other ones, all the so-called other ones, are a reflection of the first one. And that is the act by which the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, places us in the body of Christ. So when you're, Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold. If anyone comes any other way, he is a thief and a robber. So, so, so what is that? When we are placed by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, into the body of Christ, we're placed into the community positionally, which is a baptism. Now, there are three things that happen when you're baptized together. All of us were baptized together. We were, we were first baptized on the cross through his death. That means our lives will be marked by death, dying regularly. So when, you, when we have one baptism, that means Christians are going to suffer. There's, there's no such thing as squeaky clean Christianity. It's only grimy, dirty, and then exaltation. Grimy, dirty, exaltation. Grimy, dirty. I always, I told Pastor Nyron, me and him were talking the other day, I said, it's funny how when stuff is really going real nice, I'm like, okay, Lord, at what point? I'm just looking because I know it's something going to happen. Because we're baptized into death, but we're buried. But then we get the, we fellowship with his sufferings, but then we're raised from the dead with him. But that's positionally and practically. So a one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, baptism points to our union with Christ. Say union with Christ. Now, there are five types of ways that we're unified with Jesus Christ. We're first unified with Christ through hum as humans or in humanity. When Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, took on an additional nature without changing his God nature, but in, uh, wrapped up into one person forever called hypostasis or the hypostatic union, he was unified with us in humanity, but sinless humanity. So he became human. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 said he had to become like his brothers in all respects. So, so Jesus Christ unified with humans by becoming a human without, without ending his deity. Number two is union through the Spirit. In Matthew 4, he was endowed with the Holy Spirit. So must we be endowed with the Spirit. Union through death and burial and resurrection. Same issue. Through Romans 6, we see that reality that we are, the, 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 the Romans 6 is about sanctification, but it's about sanctification through baptism. Through, through being placed into the body of Christ and transformed immediately at salvation. Then, a, a, a union through eternal transfiguration. Jesus Christ came back on the scene when he was raised from the dead. He was transfigured as a picture of his eternal transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew. But after he was raised from the dead, he came back in a brand spanking new body. Had the marks of it, but it was, it was, it was his same body but changed in some way, shape, or form to the point where he ain't need blood anymore. The Bible says he didn't have no blood in him. All he had was flesh and bones. So that means he gave his blood away to somebody. I don't know who it is, but he gave his blood away to somebody. So therefore, Jesus walks around unanimated. He's animated by his, his deity and the Holy Spirit, not animated by anything human. And then he can disappear and reappear in other rooms. I like that. Because the Bible says it's not yet known what we'll be, but we will be like him. Now, I, I can't wait for that transportation system. 
I said, you know what, man, in the new earth, the new heavens, man, I think I'm running over to, you know, St. Thomas, the new St. Thomas. I'm going to go over there and catch some Z's, uh, uh, you know, on the umbrella, and I'm going to just say, disappear and reappear in St. Thomas like that. No airplanes, nothing, right? New body. Brand spanking new. So we are one and unified with him in likeness of body through, our, through us being changed. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. But then finally, we will be united with him in eternal glory. 2 Thessalonians 1, 12, meaning we will reign with him. Now, I, I, I still haven't come to terms with the glory of that reality, that we will get to reign with Jesus Christ, that in some way, shape, or form that I don't understand we're unified in that. So whether or not you're a pastor or whether or not you're, you, you, you do any other role in the church, all the church will reign with him, and it was secured by him. But then it goes next, and it says something beautiful. It says, one God and Father of all. Now, we'll stay on this quick, but it points to the preeminence of the deity of the Father who has adopted us from the orphanage of planet Earth. We unified, we were unified orphans, lost. God came and adopted us. But his adoption is so powerful that he changed our blood type by giving his son's blood. So now we're not just sons and daughters based on a piece of paper that says we've been adopted. But he's changed our nature from the inside out and made us submissive and power in him. So now we have his DNA without being him. So, 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 so we have brands making new. This, God does stuff just different and always better with an upgrade. That's, that's the way he works with his. And then he said, who is over all and through all, talking about the nature of his rule through his people. Now we get to some practical points here where we see Paul begins talking about this because, of course, Jesus secured this. It's powerful. Jesus secured this. Now he says in verse 8, verse 7, I'm sorry. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is great. And, 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 and you, it, it would seem like this would cause disunity in the church. It, it would, because, because you're seeing that he's given all of us grace. That means favor ain't on no other Christian's life more than another Christian's life. Favor just looks differently. Because he says grace has been given. Now, the grace here is not merely unmerited favor. The grace here is, is interesting. It means divine enablement. Now, when it talks about divine enablement, it means that a vessel has been used, a, a, a redeemed for a particular honorable use, right? And so now Jesus has graced every Christian and God's favor is on your life if you're a believer. You know, I mean, just because somebody has a public role, you have a private one, or they have more or less than you, you got the same grace on you. But now, what he says is, 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 is that the gift is in varying levels, though. Now, he says the grace was given according to the measure of the gift. Now, you remember in chapter uh, 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 3, verse 7, Paul talked about that grace that was given to him according to the gift that the gospel brings. So every Christian is measured off a gift. It's like butter. When you're measuring or cooking something, <clears throat> there's a certain amount that's needed based on the recipe. God has a recipe of your, for your life that he wants to work out. He can't put too much butter in some of our life because that's not the trek he got us on. He, and, and then he only, and he measured it off based on his providential and sovereign use of you. Now, you can't look at someone that has the same gift and get mad at them. Because God booby-trapped us. Guess what he did? With varying levels of gifting, 
so that we would have to walk in unity and grow in it. Because you, he, does, he, he wants us to work through our coveting issues. He wants us to work through our jealousy issues. So he measures them out differently so that you can look, you can look and he said, nah, because I don't want you looking to gifts, I want you to look to me. So therefore, so therefore, I don't want you to worship how I use you. I want you to worship me. See, some of us worship being used by God, but we don't worship God. So, the, so what he, you know what he did? He measured you off a certain amount so you wouldn't worship it too much. So you, the reason why you struggle with you so much is because God wants you to see him. And, 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 and God does that beautifully in this verse by showing us to, that he works unity through. But, but listen, even though someone is given more gifting, both are equally needed. Because if one isn't used, something's out of sync. So therefore, the one with this much grace, or they both have equal grace, but this much gift and this much gift and this much gift all must work together or everything's going to fall apart. Right? So, that, so that's God's working in that. And then because we usually exalt 1 Corinthians 12 gifts. Hallelujah, we bless God. And you all in those gifts. Nobody asked me about Romans chapter 12 gifts. You know, everybody want to know about tongues and we, we believe in all that. We, we believe in miracles or signs of one. We always ask about those gifts, right? We never ask about the ones in chapter 12. Service helps. Mercy. Those are spiritual gifts, too. <laughs> Amen. And so, and so all of these are equally needed for the church to function the way God wants it to function. But then he goes in, and we're going to close on this section. He says in verse 8, he says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This, this, this is a quotation from Psalm 68, 8, or 6, verse 6. <clears throat> what the context of that psalm is God's people being taken captive by their enemies. And God going into the enemy's camp, not us going into the enemy's camp, but him going into the enemy's camp and fighting God's enemies. Once he fights their enemies, there are prisoners of war, POWs, in the enemy's camp and in the enemy's, in the enemy's kingdom. And what he does is he, he, he goes in, he frees them, and brings them out and brings them back to where they're supposed to be. And there are spoils of that war that he brings with him and he distributes to those who he's given, these, the, who he's freed from as POWs from the enemy's camp. Well, this reflection is truly realized in Jesus. When Jesus came from heaven to earth to the enemy's camp where the prince and power of air reigns, and he descended, and he didn't come in his war clothes the way most of us thought he was going to come. He came in war clothes of a human body. That was his battle outfit. Now, he's coming next time in some war clothes but th and, and some other ones on top of the outfit, you know, um, but he's, he came in a human body, and he came into the enemy's camp that is currently at work in the sons of disobedience, and he lived 33 years fighting a battle, and he culminated it on the cross. And what happened is, is once he affected, whenever a king is finished battle, the first thing a king does is go sits on his throne. So what Jesus did when he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And as he sits there, he distributes gifts as people become Christians. And as he's up there, he's at work. He's not idly sitting by waiting for himself to come back. But he's sitting up there distributing through the Spirit 
gifts to men and measuring off based on how he wants to sovereignly use us to the glory of God the Father and to his glory and to his work. And so his ascension keeps us unified because he sits there overlooking and looking in and transforming and working and affecting his call of, of God on God's people. That's why when the, when, the, when the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, was looking up, he, he, says, he, said, he said, stop looking up. He said, because this same Jesus who left in this way is coming back the same way. Now, how did he leave? Now, while he was talking, he was talking to him, and he got on a cloud. And he was standing on a cloud talking to him. And then his voice got thinner and thinner and thinner as he went up. And they were like, that was so dope. <laughs> they were rocked. Then an angel appeared. He said, fellas, I need you to get, get, get on point, go to Jerusalem, and wait for the Spirit. And he goes and sits at the right hand of God. But he said he's coming back the same way because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming on a cloud. And he's coming from the ascension to redescend. But when he redescends, he's coming. And, and Zephaniah 4.14 says he's going to sit on the Mount of Olives. And when he sits on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split to east and west. And the books of life are going to be opened based on Joel chapter 3. It's going to be called the Valley of Yehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Judgment. And the Bible says over in Revelation that we'll be flanking him. So this ascension that Jesus did is a place of authority and commitment to keep the church unified that points to the ultimate unity point that he's going to, in fact, bring to fruition when he fully returns. But then it says, he who ascended. Verse 9, it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts? People argue about whether or not it's hell or just earth, hell or earth, hell or earth. Either way, he descended, okay? So we can argue, I can give you all the views of why they say it's hell and that he proclaimed to the captivities and the bosom of Abraham is over and there's a chasm and he got them out because after he died, the tombs of the Old Testament saints were open and their bodies and they were going around the city and they were walking around sharing the gospel with everybody. That did happen, however. But then there's also the sense of the lower parts where he just came from heaven to earth, meaning lower parts, meaning the gully part of the earth. Amen. So he didn't come in high society, mid-society. He was middle class, upper class. He was no class. So it could have been either way, but what we do believe is that he came and that he went back up. Amen. So the idea, the idea and the very, very important thing that we must understand is that Jesus is working on our unity now. That's the point of it. That's the point of it, is, is, is that, th that it's very, very important that we understand that, that idea, that we don't work for unity, we work from unity. We don't work for unity, we work from unity. We don't work for unity, we work from unity. We work because we've been unified and connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel empowers that to be a reality. Father, we honor you, bless you, thank you that you are our ruler, that you are our life, that you are our health, that you are our strength, and that you are our place of safety, and you are our unity. Lord God, help the unity of the church to be a practical reality. Practical reality and a loving reality. Lord God, I pray in Jesus' mighty name that you would continue to, in fact, make this reality of unity a reality and that we would love one another and commit to one another as we have committed to you. Help your lordship to be central and effectual for us, that we would submit to you as Lord, not make you Lord, but submit to you, Lord. God the Father has made you Lord. The question is, do we submit to you as Lord? And we repent of our Lordlessness and commit our hearts to walk with you as Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.